is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Your stories are some of our favorites. And today we have on one of our regularly featured guests, and that's Stephen Rosiniak. Many of his pieces have been published in the great Chicken Soup for the Soul books. This one he wrote during the time his daughter Tracy was a high school gymnast. Here's Stephen. She didn't make a sound. You have a daughter, the doctor announced, before whispering something else to the nurses. His eyes silently spoke volumes as the OR team quickly went back to work. Not even a minute old, and already I felt such love for her. And still, I was absolutely powerless to help my baby girl. But I'm her daddy, I thought to myself. I'm supposed to be able to protect her, to keep her safe. And still, all I could do was watch from the sidelines and do nothing. It was out of my hands. She came home from the hospital five days later, and for a while, I kept her safe, for as long as I could, until the time came when I couldn't. Destiny demanded that Tracy would one day become a gymnast. After all, she began practicing for the sport while still sleeping in a crib. Twice, Karen and I found her roaming the house long after she and her stuffed animal friends had been tucked in for the night. Determined to learn how this feat was being accomplished, we waited and watched, and eventually we saw our not-quite-two-year-old scaling the sides of her crib with the amazing agility of Sir Edmund Hillary repelling Mount Everest. Rather than running the risk of her plummeting during one of our nighttime escapades, we thought it best if she made the transition from crib to big girl bed. But in hindsight, how could we have known that her perilous climbing adventures would one day give way to her spending her autumn afternoons on blue matted floors as a member of her high school gymnastics team? In retrospect, I now view her early years as a time when the risks she faced were comparably minimal to those before her today. A time, not so long ago, when her blankie and her daddy's arms were more than enough to keep her safe. In the moments leading up to the start of the competition, both teams were warming up out on the floor. A dread began to grow within me as I watched the slow and calculated maneuvers being executed atop the balance beam by two gymnasts as they tweaked their routines in last-minute preparations. Tracy, however, wasn't one of them, at least for the moment. Instead, I saw her stretching on the floor in her new competition leotards, or leos, as she'd recently corrected me. Soon enough, though, she would be out there performing, and once again, I'd be helplessly watching from the sidelines. Admittedly, what scares me the most is that when Tracy competes on the beam, she's on her own, potentially at risk, vulnerable. And through it all, I feel as I did in the moments following her birth. 
absolutely powerless. And for me, this is a problem. I'm her daddy. I'm supposed to protect her and to keep her safe. After all, this has been my job forever. But today, once again, when she begins her routine, all I can do is watch from the sidelines and do nothing. Once again, it's out of my hands. For almost two hours, she was out there, on her own. And when she mounted the balance beam, I held my breath and watched. A twist, a turn, a handstand, some fancy footwork, a surprising cartwheel, a few leaps, and then an aerial front-tuck somersaulting dismount, all safely executed, her hands raised in the air, her smile radiant. She nailed it again. Back in the stands, my breathing resumes. She's getting better every day, honing her talents, mastering her skills. Later, on the ride home, we rehashed the entire meet, and I realized, at least for the moment, my little girl was safe. And my grudging admission, she's not so little anymore. How did this happen? I mean, when did my little crib-climbing escape artist suddenly become the 16-year-old Leo-wearing gymnastics competitor anyway? I'm well aware that my fears of watching her perform, especially on the balance beam, are in part a metaphor for all the concerns that I'll always have for her well-being. It's inevitable that as she grows older, she'll be confronted with so many of life's obstacles. And when she is, I'll always be there, still a little nervous, sometimes worried, but always proud of her, just like I am today. And so, for the rest of her gymnastics career, I'll quietly remain another spectator daddy sitting in the stands, continuing as she competes, to both cringe and celebrate her determination and independence as she has the time of her life out there on the beam. And thanks as always to Stephen Rosiniak for the work he does for us, and thanks to Faith for producing the story. And my goodness, what a story it is of a father, well, in the end, just having to do nothing sometimes and watch and just support his little girl and be there when she falls. That crib-climbing escape artist is now walking the high beam and performing on the high beam. It's a great metaphor for life. And in the end, what a great father-daughter story. So much is written about fathers and sons, not enough about fathers and daughters. And, of course, mothers and their sons and daughters, too. These things we spend a lot of time on here on Our American Stories. We love your stories, your father-son, father-daughter, mother-son and mother-daughter stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites, your stories. Thanks to Steve Rosiniak, his story, his daughter Tracy's story, here on Our American Stories. And 
Tonight we continue here with our American stories. And we tell stories about everything here on the show, as you well know. And often it's not the rich and the famous or the people who've innovated or done extraordinary things and everybody knows about. It's the, it's the ordinary folks in this country doing extraordinary things. And that brings us to the story of Wendy Caldwell. She is the oldest cadet to graduate from Houston's Police Academy. Faith brings us the story. Wendy Caldwell is a 54-year-old mounted patrol officer. This is actually her second time working for the Houston Police Department. She first went to the academy in 1993 and graduated that same year. She was then assigned to a patrol station. After having three years of service, then I applied and went to the mounted patrol unit um, where I stayed until 1998. And uh, during that time, I had gotten married and uh, we had our first child. It just really felt like it was a better calling to stay at home and raise the kids. So that's what I did. I chose to resign my position at the police department and raise the kids. And that's what I did for the next 18 years. What was it like going from being a police officer to a stay-at-home mom? I got to experience all kinds of things, you know. You know, everything that you, you hope you get to see when your kids are growing up, they're when they say their first word or when they, when they take their first steps. And, uh, uh, you know, I got to be that, that mom that drove the kids to dance and baseball practice. And I was privileged to homeschool my kids for a good portion of their uh, academic years. And so it was, it was very fulfilling. It was really nice. It, it, it was um, much different than being you know, going, going to be a full-time mom where, I mean, there is no manual to being a mother. You just are, and you figure it out along the way, and if you're lucky, you have family and friends that can help you along the way, but for the most part, it's, it's kind of a steep learning curve, you know, and you, um, when the kids are little, my kids were 15 months apart, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, you know, and it's not like going to a nine-to-five job every day. Um, there's no sick days. There's no time off. There's no vacation days. There, there isn't any of that stuff. You, you are on call 24/7, you know, 365 days a year. But on the flip side of that, the reward is—it's just tremendous. It's, it's incredible. To, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have traded it for the world. But I did go through a small identity, you know, shift there and. I realized uh, sitting on the riding lawnmower one summer, um, one summer day driving around, I said, "You know, life is good. I, I get to I get to do this, and I get to raise my kids, and I and um, life is good." So a great moment, you know, to realize that I was happy and satisfied, and that uh, you know, it's a big change. It's it's scary. I, I left something that I loved. I had a horse that I loved. Um, and into something that I, you know, had no idea how it was going to turn out or, or what was going to happen. And it was, you know, those are scary moments. Those can be a little frightening. How did Wendy end up back with the Houston Police Department after staying home with the kids? After, after being married, uh, we were married almost 20 years. Uh, no, we were married 20 years at that point because we were married a couple years before we started having children. 
and um, we went through a really rough time and ended up getting a divorce. Um, and that was that was really tough. Um, so I had to, you know, think about. Well, gosh, you know, what am I going to do? I, I I've got to go back to work. Um, what am I going to do? I haven't done anything for the last 18 years. I have some college. I don't have a college degree. Um, and my, my resume basically says stay-at-home mom. And who's going to hire me? I'm 50, almost, I was 52 years of age at the time. And, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Coincidentally, I was playing softball, a co-ed softball with uh, a group of friends. And uh, one of them just happened to be a sergeant in the recruiting division for HPD. And I had done some visiting with a, an old friend of mine from the Harris County Sheriff's Department, and she she suggested that I attempt to uh, challenge the TCOL exam, which is the state licensing exam, which means I would study and then challenge the apply to challenge the exam, and then once I did that, I could I could be certified again, and then I would have to have an agency pick up my commission. So I was chatting with my recruiting sergeant friend and uh, asked him how difficult he thought it would be to do that. And he says, well, why? Are you thinking about coming back? And I said, well, I don't think uh, I'm eligible to come back to HPD. And he goes, well, hold on a second. Let me, let me double check that. So he checked with his lieutenant, and apparently I was eligible. There was a, a gentleman, coincidentally, that was a brother to uh, a gentleman that I had graduated with the first time in the academy that came back to the department at the age of 50 and he set precedents for the police department that if you were a former HPD officer and had left as long as you could fulfill the, the all the requirements and do the physical um, physical training that you were eligible to come back and so I was able to come back to HPD uh, with the stipulation that I had to complete the entire six and a half month academy again. So that process began and um, came back in August 29th of um, 2016 and graduated the academy again in uh, March 16th of 2017. What were the two experiences of the Academy like for Wendy? They were completely different for me. Uh, the first time I went through, I was 29 years of age and graduated at 30. So I was, you know, back then I, I was into, I, I kept myself in pretty good shape. I, I still do, but you know, there's a, there's a big difference between 30 and 50 and <laughs> most people figure that out as they age, but um, the this time around it was much more it was much more difficult they had ramped up the physical uh, the the pt portion of it the physical training so it was a lot harder than it was last time uh, we did a lot more running we did a lot more hills we did uh, you know it was like a, a basic training uh, army basic training you know we did we did log carries and, and all kinds of stuff. You know, we did fireman carries. We did, we did, you know, the whole gamut of physical training that you would expect to see 
in any boot camp or um, police academy training. And so my body did not hold up as well this time. I had a lot of, uh, I had some tendonitis going on. I had some, you know, but I, but I struggled through it and I always maintained um, where I needed to be and, um, and still, still graduated you know, 17 out of out of 67 in my class. That and that included all my scores, my academic, my driving, my shooting, and my physical training, as well. So, I thought I didn't think that was too bad for graduating 53 <laughs> and number 17 in my class. What was it like being so much older than everyone else? We we had a conversation at one point when we were in the, <clears throat> in the gym, and some of the some of the younger ones were talking about some stuff that they were doing and 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 I I looked at him and I said wait a minute what year were you born <laughs> we were chuckling about it and uh, most of them were born in like 93 94 and I said oh my gosh I was already a police officer <laughs> my nickname in the academy they used to call me mom so that was a nice I mean, it, it was very heartwarming, and they all, they were all really, at first I think they were a little concerned that I could even make it, um, but then about halfway through the academy, or, or probably a little sooner than that, they were, they were all rooting for me, and they, they were there in support, and you know, um, and I was kind of there, they, it was nice, they, they, they treated me like a mom, you know, it was nice. And when we come back more with Wendy Caldwell's story, and my goodness, she was scared to become a mom, and then she was scared to become a cop again. And that happens in our lives, folks, and that's why we tell you stories like this and from our subjects' mouths themselves. When we come back, more of Wendy Caldwell's story here on Our American Stories. And if you have a story like this, and particularly these life-changing stories, the kids are out of the nest, you're sick of one career, you go to another, a divorce, a death, uh, something that really fundamentally shifts your life view, and you've got to react and change. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Your stories are some of our favorites. When we come back, more of Wendy Caldwell's story after these commercial messages. we continue with the story of Wendy Caldwell. She had not worked for almost 20 years after staying at home with her kids. After she got a divorce, Wendy decided to go back to work for the Houston PD. That would make her the oldest cadet to graduate from that academy. We return to Wendy talking about how the other recruits in the academy treated her. They used to razz me all the time and there was one guy in particular and he used to he used to kid me all the time and he'd say, you know, when you graduate, we're gonna we're gonna get you a life alert. And I said, Oh, thanks a lot, I appreciate you. <laughs> and uh, he jokingly said one time, uh, he goes, Well, maybe if we don't get you a life alert, we'll have to get you a walker when you graduate. And uh, coincidentally, I did I did graduate and cross the stage on a walker because 
during the last phase of training, um, my femur was broken. And uh, so I had to finish the academy on a walker. <laughs> Wendy actually broke her femur during the final academy exercise. How did this happen? It happened during an exercise called Red Man, which is the culmination of your physical training for the entire academy. And um, they basically what our Red Man does is it prepares you as a new police officer to understand what it feels like to be in, a, in the fight of your life. Um, because a lot of times you'll have recruits that come in that, that may have never ever been in a fight in their life. Um, you know, a scuffle, or, and most of them have never been punched in the face. So this is a little, just a little taste of that to help you understand what it's like when you're chasing a suspect and you catch them and they don't want to be arrested and you guys are fighting. Um, and that's, it's, 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 um, it's intense, it's exhausting, um, and then you're fighting under the um, uh, exhaustion and, uh, you know, you're, what it's like to fight with that diminished oxygen and mental capacity, what your thinking is going to be like during that time. Um, so it, it gives you a lot of different um, things to think about, um, but it's used as a training tool at the very end of the academy. So. And unfortunately, during my session, um, the, my red man gave me a, 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 a femur strike with the knee and, uh, and broke my leg. Fortunately for me, I had completed um, all of the T-Cole requirements necessary for the academy with the exception of taking my exam. So at that point, it was all I had to do was take the exam. Um, um, to finish the academy um, and then graduate, which was in two weeks. So they were talking about recycling me and, you know, there was, it, it was a little scary for me at the time because I, the first thought that went through my mind was, I went all this way and I'm not going to get to graduate. I'm, I'm going to have to do this whole thing again. And I, I, knew in my mind that I physically didn't think I had another six and a half months in me to do it. So it was, it was tough. I mean, it was emotionally, it really, it really messed with me a little bit because I thought I'm not going to, this can't be happening. So <clears throat> luckily for me, um, my captain at the time over the academy, she was they talked about it and they were like, oh no, she's done everything. All she has to do is take the exam. Um, my academic scores were, there wasn't an issue with that. So I took my, my state licensing exam and passed that with flying colors. And they allowed me, graciously allowed me to graduate with my class. So how did being an officer in her 20s differ to being a police officer in her 50s? I think your perspective changes dramatically once you have kids. And you realize that you're not this invincible, you're not this invincible person anymore. 
Um, you also, you have these little human beings to take care of. Um, so it changes your perspective on things a lot. You're a lot more cautious about things. You're, you know, and I also realize too that, that my age plays a little bit more into that factor as well. I, I, I'm not as fast as I used to be. My reflexes are probably not as quick. I'm probably a little smarter though, because <laughs> I can see it coming quicker. But uh, yeah, there's just a, there's a whole lot of, you, it's just everything. Your perspective is the biggest change in the whole thing. You know, back when I was 30, I was invincible. You know, you get up, you're every day, you're excited to go to work. You're running and gunning and, and loving, loving the, the chase and the thrill of the chase. And now it's like, well, it's fun, but I'm not going to get all excited about it like I used to. <laughs> I need to be a little more cautious. <laughs> How did her kids respond to her going back to the police force? My kids were awesome. They were so supportive of me, and um, they really were my biggest fans. They really, really were. My, uh, on the really, really hard days, you know, I just remember what they that they were there and that I was doing this for them, you know. A lot of it was for them, so... Um, when we were, a very poignant moment for me was when we were putting on our uniforms for graduation. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still on a walker, I'm, you know, getting my uniform on and I uh, zip up that uniform shirt and um, I actually started crying because it was, it was a very emotional moment for me to realize that I had earned that that shirt and badge and the privilege to, to wear that uniform one more time. And my kids were, they were amazing at my graduation. They were so, they were so excited. I think they were more excited than I was. <laughs> what are Wendy's future plans? I am actually 55 now. I graduated the academy at 53, so I'm 55 now. I'll be 56 coming up here shortly. Um, I am back at the mounted patrol unit, so I get to. I'll probably I'll probably stay here and end my career over here. It'll be a long one, but I'm not quite sure how many years will we can do at this point. But as long as I can, I'm going to stay here. You're never too old to do what you really want to do, and Sometimes when it's really, really hard, that's when you, that's when you get the best reward. You know, that's, this was definitely the hardest thing I've ever done, but it's also been the most rewarding. I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories. And thank you to Wendy Caldwell, and great job as always, Faith, on this story. I'm not sure how many years I have, but I'm going to stay as long as I can. She was doing it for her kids, and yet her kids, well, they were cheerleading on mom. And it's a beautiful thing when people do these kind of things. We also got to hear, well, what cops train for, right? And the circumstances they have to get into in their lives. They actually get trained to get punched in the face, to run down perps who might be on drugs or might be doing bad things to the community. And so anytime we get a chance, 
when we can walk in the shoes of others, including those in blue or those fighting overseas to defend us, understand their walk. It's harder than the rest of us. They're volunteering to fight against some really dark forces in the world, and that can impact their lives. We're looking for your stories, too, always. These kinds of stories, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, your stories are our favorites here. This is Our American Stories, a story of Wendy Caldwell, a story of love, a story of compassion, and in the end, what nerve and guts to go back into the academy in your 50s. What a choice, a beautiful choice. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. our American stories. And when we first bumped into Dr. Charles Kemper of Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, we were amazed. Graduating from Duke University in 1940, this 100-year-old doctor has seen generations come and go in his town and actually help deliver a whole lot of those generations at birth. Knowing that he was probably a treasure trove of stories, we sent our team out to interview him at his home, here's our own Monty Montgomery with his story. Dr. Charles Kemper grew up on the East Coast in Baltimore, Maryland. Baltimore is like a big metropolis, most any place. But Baltimore at the time, at one time, was a principal city in, in the United States. Right on the Chesapeake Bay was a center for shipping and uh, there was a lot going on and that's where the Star Spangled Banner was written, Francis Scott Key and uh, I had good parents. My dad uh, had a terrible temper and I was a, I was scared of him because trivial things would upset him. I think it wasn't just his fault like a lot of people have a kind of a sort of a marginal existence where they have to work very hard just to keep their family going. Uh, he would get come home tired, exhausted, working 20 hours a day, uh, carrying suitcases. He was a merchandiser. He would travel to all these little towns with had little stores and pull out these big sample boxes, open them up and show them what, what they might like to buy. Well, anyway... He'd come home and get mad at trivial things like, why don't you fix me to those fried potatoes like I always like? I guess he was so tired and exhausted that everything annoyed him. But I think he was very good-hearted nevertheless. And I came across a letter he wrote once in which he said, uh, everybody hates me. That <laughs> uh, was just his perception I remember one time I and my cousin, Sidney, uh, we played hooky from Sunday school. And he was supposed to pick us up on a certain corner downtown Baltimore. We went to the wrong corner or waited for him at the wrong corner or he forgot which corner it was. I don't know. But anyway, boy, 
I was scared to death of what he was gonna say or do. I had some of those characteristics, but I think they gradually evolved as I got older in uh, understanding. And I certainly don't feel that way now. And eager to live a life better than his father did, Charles decided that he wanted to become a doctor, a dream his mother was more than happy to support. When I graduated, she gave me a doctor's bag, and I still have it. And I still used it all, all these years. It was a sort of a, a truism that Jewish mothers were ambitious that their sons would become doctors and not uh, politicians. <laughs> After serving as a medic in the Army Air Corps in World War II, Kemper decided to move to Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, setting the city aside for the country due to a number of reasons. My wife's parents lived uh, in a town not far from here, and she was pregnant. This was after I had to decide where I was going to practice, and I thought it'd be, be good to practice here in this small town because she would be close to her parents when at her first child. And one of the doctors at the hospital where I was resident said, why don't you come to Chippewa Falls? There's only 10 doctors here. So I came here. I was the 11th doctor. My parents uh, were happy that I was a doctor, but they wanted me to stay uh, in Baltimore. And they thought that this country out here was the Wild West where cowboys and Indians, when they arrived to see me, visit me for the first time, as they were walking in the do into the house, a car pulled up with four hunters in it. They pulled up in front of the house and yelled at me, did you see where the wolf went? <laughs> and my mother almost fainted. I really came from a different world. <laughs> but I, I, I wanted to be in a place where I, where I knew everybody and got acquainted with them and they knew me. I remember the very first patient I had in town, all the doctors in those days in this town had their office upstairs, uh, which is uh, kind of stupid when you think about it because people with heart trouble to climb those stairs. Well, anyway, the first day I, in my practice, I had my office upstairs in downtown. You had to walk down the hall, and that was the last office there. And my first day in practice, I, I parked a car out front and I waited there, and I didn't see a patient until just about 4.30. And an old man walked in, and he didn't have anything seriously wrong with him. But he asked me if I would come see his father. Uh, see his father? Holy smokes. He must be really old. I was curious. So I said, sure, I'll be happy to come see him. Well, when he left, and I walked down the, to my car, and lo, I had a ticket for illegal parking. Uh, and uh, the fine was exactly the same as what the patient paid me, which was two bucks. I used to like to make house calls because that took me out in the country, and I always had my binoculars on the seat beside me, and I would stop and look at... Uh, 
stare at, at some bird. Or... You heard right. Dr. Kemper has always had a fascination with birds. Dating back to his time in World War II when crossing the Pacific by boat, he watched albatross and other birds off the ship, out of boredom primarily. Charles now tells the story of one of his memorable bird-watching experiences. There was one time at the base of this hill, or at the top of the hill, is a Catholic church, and the nuns live in the convent. Well, anyway, I was driving up the hill, and I got to the top. I saw a white, pure white starling that I had captured and, and put a band on it about a week before. Bird banding is an occupation by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. In those days, it didn't have high technology. That was one way of studying putting a, a serial-numbered band, an aluminum band, around the ankle of the bird. And that way, if the bird was ever recovered, they would know where the bird went. But anyway, I s pulled my car to a stop and jumped out of the car with my binoculars, and I stared at that Starling, I wanted to see if it had a bend on its leg. And just then, curtain in the convent came down suddenly. <laughs> some nurse or some lady, uh, sister in the convent, saw me with my binoculars. And, <laughs> and uh, I thought, uh-oh, there goes my reputation. <laughs> so... Uh, I had to live that down. And Charles even took some of his patients bird watching. I remember I had one lady uh, who was old enough to be my mother was interested in birds. And one day I took her, her she and her husband and myself uh, went out to a swamp just outside of town. And there was an interesting bird there that we were looking at, the bird was a bittern, which has a habit of standing very still and with his bill pointed upward. And he fades into the environment, but he doesn't move. That's his means of defense. And we were on the roadside and looking at that bird, which was about 20 yards away. And I wanted to see what would happen if I picked up a small rock and throw it near the bird, see if I could flush it to fly away. Well, I wasn't too accurate. When I threw the rock, it hit the bird. <laughs> and Mrs. Lund was her name anyway. She said right away, I'm changing doctors. <laughs> she thought I threw a rock at the bird. I didn't throw a rock at the bird. I was trying to miss the bird. Just scare him so he would see if he would fly off. And even today, at 100 years old, Charles still has a fascination with birds. But as for his longevity, he thanks their creator and his. I was just lucky. I had nothing to do with my longevity. I just <laughs> good Lord, had some reason for keeping me here. And I, I firmly believe that.
And you've been listening to Dr. Charles Kemper of Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. And what a unique voice. And my goodness, the days of a doctor making house calls, of having a home office in the home. What a shock to the Baltimore family. I spent some time living in Baltimore myself and near the big city of New York. We now broadcast from Oxford, Mississippi, a small town of 20,000 an hour south of Memphis. It still shocks some of my friends, but it's home to me and my family. And this show... And a great job, as always, by Monty Montgomery, a proud Hillsdale alum. Dr. Charles Kemper's story, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites, and all of our history work is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, by the way. Go to Hillsdale.edu to sign up for their terrific and free online courses. And our next story comes to us from a man who's simply known as the History Guy. His videos are watched by hundreds of thousands of people of all ages over on YouTube. The History Guy is also heard here at Our American Stories. In this next story, the History Guy remembers the 16th president's son, Robert Todd Lincoln. Because of his father, Abraham Lincoln, Robert Todd's life has been largely forgotten. Here's the History Guy. On April 9, 1865, General Robert E. Lee surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia to Union General Ulysses S. Grant following the defeat of the Confederate Army at the Battle of Appomattox Courthouse. The surrender documents were actually signed in the parlor of a home owned by a man named William McLean, and they were witnessed by both Grant and Lee's staff. The last survivor among those witnesses lived all the way until 1926, and by coincidence was a very famous person, one of the most important statesmen of his day. Robert Todd Lincoln was Abraham Lincoln's firstborn son and the only one of Abraham Lincoln's children to survive to adulthood. His younger brother Edward died of a fever at just the age of three. Robert grew up at a time when his father was practicing law on a circuit and thus was traveling, gone most of the time, and so their relationship was distant, not very close. Robert once noted that his most vivid memories of his father growing up was Abraham packing his saddlebags. By the time that Robert's father was elected president, Robert was attending Harvard University. He described his father as being so busy that they scarcely had 10 minutes quiet time together during his entire presidency. Robert graduated Harvard in 1864 and briefly attended law school there, but he felt compelled to join the Union Army and share the risks that everybody else was taking. At first his mother resisted. His little brother Willie had died in the White House of a fever in 1862, and his mother, Mary Todd Lincoln, feared that she could not withstand another loss. But Robert eventually prevailed, and his father asked General Grant if Robert could be assigned to his staff. Robert was made an assistant adjutant and given the rank of captain, and that is why he was present to witness Lee's surrender. Robert had traveled to Washington to visit his parents on April 15th, and his parents invited him to go to the theater with them, but he declined. He had been traveling on horseback all day and needed a rest, and so Robert narrowly missed his father's assassination. 
Robert moved with his mother and his younger brother, Tad, to Chicago, and he continued his law studies. He was admitted to the bar in 1867. In 1868, he married the daughter of a United States senator. They had three children. In 1876, Robert was elected town supervisor of the town of South Chicago, a town that was eventually absorbed into the city of Chicago. That was his only elected office of his career. In 1877, he was offered the position of Assistant Secretary of State by President Rutherford B. Hayes, but he declined, although he remained active in Republican politics. And then in 1881, he accepted a cabinet appointment as Secretary of War in the new cabinet of President James Garfield. He was with Garfield in the train station in July of 1881 and witnessed Garfield's assassination. Robert continued to serve as Secretary of War in the cabinet of President Chester A. Arthur, where he was involved in many military reforms. He left the position in 1885. And then in 1889, he was appointed to the important position of Minister to the United Kingdom under President Benjamin Harrison, where he served for four years. When he returned to the United States, he became General Counsel of the Pullman Palace Car Company, the world-famous maker of railway cars. And when the founder, George Pullman, died in 1897, Robert was made president of the Pullman Car Company. He served in that position until 1911 when he left due to ill health, but he stayed on as chairman of the board clear until 1922. Despite his very accomplished life, Robert Todd Lincoln is often remembered for three things. The first was a coincidence. Somewhere in 1863 or 1864, Robert Todd Lincoln was riding a train from New York City to Washington, D.C., and while in Jersey City, New Jersey, he was bumped off a train platform, landing in the dangerous spot between the platform and the train. A stranger reached down and pulled him out, and when Robert looked up, he realized that his savior was the most famous actor of the day, a man named Edwin Booth. Only later did Edwin Booth find out that the young man that he had saved was President Lincoln's son, and that is said to have offered Edwin Booth some solace, as he was personally devastated when his younger brother, John Wilkes Booth, murdered President Lincoln. Second, in 1875, Robert had his mother, Mary Todd Lincoln, committed to an asylum. He was concerned about erratic behavior after the death of his younger brother, Tad, at the age of 18. Mary was able to get some letters out to her attorney, who was able to convince Robert to let her leave the asylum and live with her sister, but it included some public embarrassment for Robert, and he and his mother never fully reconciled. And finally, Robert Tom Lincoln is sometimes described as being somewhat unlucky because of his proximity to three presidential assassinations. He just missed his father's assassination, he was there when James A. Garfield was assassinated, and he was just getting off a train going to visit President William McKinley when McKinley was shot in 1901. It is tragic that a man who lived such an accomplished life is remembered for coincidences. He was there for three presidential assassinations because he was proximate to power during a tumultuous time. But Robert Todd Lincoln lived an extraordinary life. He was born poor and yet found great success and died very wealthy. He was an elder statesman. He was a leader in his party who was suggested as a candidate for president or vice president many times but always declined. He was the president of one of the largest corporations in the country. He was, frankly, one of the most accomplished men of his era. His last public appearance was May 30th of 1922, when he appeared with President Warren G. Harding and former President and Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, William Howard Taft, at the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial. 
He passed away in 1926, just a few days shy of his 83rd birthday. He was the last surviving member of the Garfield and Arthur administrations and the last surviving witness to Lee's surrender. Robert Todd Lincoln lived an amazing, extraordinary, accomplished life during one of the most dynamic periods in American history. And darn it, he deserves to be remembered as more than just his father's son. And those words are true and spoken beautifully by the history guy. By the way, if you want more stories of forgotten history, please subscribe to his YouTube channel, The History Guy, colon, History Deserves to be Remembered. This is Robert Todd Lincoln's story, here on Our American Stories. And we're back with Our American Stories. And now Alex Cortez brings us the story of an Israeli immigrant as part of our Immigrant Song series. I mean, the existential um, fear and the existential risk is so great at any moment in one's life in Israel that um, it makes you go out on a limb. Even in music. And that's not a guitar shredding Led Zeppelin's Black Dog. That's a cello. The cello of the woman who's been called the world's cello goddess, Maya Beiser. We desire to be free and music gives you, it allows you that freedom. But there are also a lot of rules because in sort of the traditional education of classical music, you're being taught to follow all these rules about how you're supposed to present yourself, about how certain piece of music should be heard. And these were the kind of things that I always questioned. People have always said, Oh, yeah, you never followed the traditional path, the predictable way. And to me, that's what an artist does. And I think that's what we all should do as humans. We should aspire to be free. An ideal that Jewish families like hers have chased for decades, making her musical risks seem like nothing. My father grew up in Argentina. He's actually a son of immigrants from Ukraine who escaped from Ukraine in the turn of the century. You know, Jews were not very well liked there at that time. <laughs> and they ended up, they were banned, and they ended up going in a boat and coming to Argentina and settling in the middle of the Pampas, creating this little Jewish community in which my father was 
raised. And he met my mom in Buenos Aires. She was just visiting with her family. My mother grew up in France. This was in the Vichy area of France when the Nazis occupied France. Both my grandparents became partisans. They went into the the woods and they fought against the Nazis. They put my mom and her sister in a monastery where she was raised. All Jews were basically either killed or somehow managed to hide. So this is the background to where Zionists came. At that time in history, Israel was the promised land for Jews who felt like it was the only place where they could be safe. And my father, he was a Zionist and decided to come to Israel. And he convinced my mom to go into this kibbutz, this community. It was a real commune. There was a sense that they wanted to make a just world. And so the whole idea of the kibbutz movement was really about creating a society where everybody is equal and their motto was that you give as much as you can and you take as much as you need, uh, which is kind of a beautiful motto <laughs> for life. Karl Marx's motto, and it is beautiful if it works. More on that later. This kibbutz, which was in the Galilee mountain, there's literally nothing there. The environment, just to kind of paint for you the environment that I grew up with, was an environment that we were surrounded by Arab villages. In fact, not even a mile from where I grew up, there was a Bedouin village. They were Muslims. There was another village, another mile from there. Some were Christians. There was another one that were Druze, which is another culture. And my father spoke Arabic. He was the people from all these villages. They were part of our household. I mean, they would come, we would go to them. We lived in harmony. And one of my first musical experiences, which influenced me a lot, was hearing the call to prayer to the Muazin every morning at 5 a.m., just waking up and hearing those beautiful singing voices from the villages that were around us. And we went to their weddings. We were always, it was just a wonderful environment. So that was one reality. And then there was the other reality of my childhood, which was we were surrounded by those enemies, right? I mean, there was the Egyptian army, and there was the Syrian army, and there was the Jordanian army. All picking on this little nation called Israel. There was always this fear of war, and that we would be attacked, and everybody had to go to the army. I mean, 1973, the Syrian army, I mean, we basically spent that war in shelters. It was very scary. And I remember my parents saying, the tanks are very close to the kibbutz. And we really literally thought we might be occupied and killed. So it was, yeah, there was a lot of that. We also had a lot of, during my childhood, there were a lot of small terrorists 
cells that would go mostly through the Jordan River. Where I grew up, it was right by the Jordan River, so they were coming through the Jordan border and they would take over like hostages. They did them several kibbutzes at the time and killed them and so there was you know there was a lot of a lot of scary thing happening. <laughs> Maya laughs because otherwise she'd have to cry. You know, I see things in I think the more the complexity of the situation and I see it more than people can really get a sense when when you just kind of hear it in the news, you know, because it's very complex. And yet one roadblock is rather simple. Islamic fundamentalists like Hamas have the explicit goal of destroying Israel. And that is the big challenge, of course, you know, because there are people there that no, no matter what I would say, would still want to kill me. They would just want to kill me simply because I'm a Jew or because I'm an Israeli. And so they don't, they don't care if I offer to speak about peace. So, so that's, and of course, that's very hard. And especially in a situation where you've got people who are so desperate that they're being manipulated by cynical and sometimes religious zealousy and money from not necessarily good forces like Iran. But what do you do when you have little kids who their mother, their mothers are willing to send them with suicide belts to explode? But ultimately for me in my world and what I can do is I just want to promote in every possible way that I can with my art. I want to promote peace and I want to promote through music, which I think is so important, the, the notion that we're really, that we really have kinship, we're really close to each other. And so I think if you start peeling all those unnecessary layers of resentment and hatred and all those things, then you hope that eventually, somehow, it reaches <laughs> sort of the depth of our souls. Indeed, and we're listening to Maya Beiser, the cello goddess, and it's so true about music, and we love telling music stories here on this show from our stories of song. It's just the stories of artists and the differences in cultures that are brought together through music, my favorite being Carole King, a young Jewish girl growing up on the Upper West Side, and Aretha Franklin, born in Memphis, grows up in Detroit, the daughter of one of the biggest preachers, the Billy Graham of African-American preachers of the 1950s. And they come together through a song that Carol wrote and only Aretha could have performed, bringing white and black together, north, south, and east, rural and urban together. Only music has that power. And when we come back, we'll continue with Maya Beiser's story here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories and our immigrant song. And today it's Maya Beiser's story, her song, Cellist Maya Beiser. She grew up in Israel in a kibbutz. Let's continue with her tale. In my kibbutz, everybody started to play instruments. When we were six years old, it was just a wonderful thing. They also did what they called musical hearing tests, just to kind of see your musical talent. And they found that I had perfect pitch and immediately said, well, you know, you, you have a great talent, you should play the violin. And I didn't want to play the violin. And the reason I didn't want to play the violin was because there were all these other people that already played the violin, and I wanted an instrument that nobody else had. And I said, can I play the cello? Nobody in the kibbutz ever played the cello. They didn't have a teacher. But my father had some old recordings in the house of Pablo Casals, who was the great cellist, and he would always play for me since I was a little girl, and I fell in love with that sound. And I loved the fact that nobody else had it, so I requested it, and they said, no, we can't, we can't give you a cello, A, because we, we don't have the money to buy a cello, and we don't have a cello teacher, but I insisted, and my father spoke to his family in Argentina and asked them if they would buy a cello for me. So they did, and the kibbutz agreed to let me go outside of the kibbutz to study, which was the most exciting thing ever, because when you leave the kibbutz, you get to wear special clothes. There was like this one room that had special clothes that were only if you go out of the kibbutz, you're allowed to wear them. So I remember putting this special little skirt and, and shirt, and I was so excited. And my father and I took the public bus to the nearby town. It was called Afula. And believe me, it's not a very glamorous town. It's a tiny little town. But for me, it looked like the most beautiful place. And we went into this public library where the teacher came to teach me. It was like magic because it was just this discovery. Within a year, I was very good to the point where she felt that she needed to pass me on to a better teacher. And she recommended that I start studying with this teacher in Tel Aviv, who was the best teacher at the time in Israel. So the kibbutz had to convene because everything in the kibbutz had to be decided in a democratic way and they had to vote on allowing me to go to Tel Aviv to study, and they did vote. It was the beginning of a very long journey with the kibbutz where I was basically creating all these precedents that they sometimes were not happy about. <laughs> and in that sense, of course, the kibbutz was a faulty idea, very much so. I mean, it was a beautiful ideal at the time, but they didn't see all the faults that was within when there were a lot of them. When yes, Karl Marx had some great ideas, but in reality, they haven't really worked that well, as we know. 
After successfully challenging the conventions of her kibbutz, Maya next challenged those of the classical music world. A few years later, I was discovered by the great violinist Isaac Stern, who came to Israel, and he became my mentor. Stern, in addition to his personal mastery, also discovered Yo-Yo Ma and helped save New York's Carnegie Hall. And a lot of things have changed from there on. But I was playing in, in the, the big man auditorium in Tel Aviv, and it was sort of my first big concert. I was 15 at the time. And my mom took me to buy a dress. And as you can gather from what I've told you, I had a very strong sense of fashion, which was not necessarily what was the f- expected fashion from you know, a soloist with an orchestra. But she insisted that we get this dress, and so I went along with it, and she got me the shoes and everything. And just before I went on stage, I just, I felt, again, this urge to kind of do something that would allow me to connect. I think it's really to connect to my freedom. And I decided to just go barefoot. So I went with the dress, and I went barefoot, and I just did it right before I went on stage so nobody could say anything. And, of course, it became a little bit of a scandal. Then I was, okay, I I really wanted to wear boots and wear, like, tight leggings. So it didn't necessarily start so much with the repertoire, but it started more with just the idea of theatricality on stage, the idea that when I go on stage, I want to be who I am and not sort of accept somebody else's notion of what I'm supposed to be. And therefore, my fashion and what I wear was something that I wanted to define. The same was true for lighting. I've always wanted to have a certain kind of lighting on stage because I always felt like, why is it that some of my great idols like Janis Joplin or the rock and roll people can do all these great lightings and we as classical performers need to go and play in this very boring wash of white on stage. So I've always asked lighting designers to come and, and do lighting. And, and some of my first performances here in the United States also like were views. They would say, oh, you know, she used lighting as if it was some kind of a novelty, you know, because it was in the classical music world. But in terms of repertoire, I think the big moment for me was very early on, actually, which is that I've always had an omnivorous kind of appetite for music. I was always interested in all kinds of music, not just classical music. And for many years, it was a secret. You know, I would listen to Brian Eno and I would listen to Janis Joplin, who was my idol, you know, when I was a teenager. But I couldn't say that to anybody, uh, certainly not in the classical music world, because a lot of these people didn't really consider non-classical music a serious form of art. I just didn't want to limit what I could do with the instrument based on what has been done. What I wanted to do with the cello was to bring all this repertoire that really meant a lot to me, all this kind of music 
For example, my collaborations with Arabic musicians, I thought that that was something that was just really important for me because I really loved Arabic music. I would listen to Um Kulthum as a kid, and I thought I wanted to learn how to play this kind of music on the cello. And you're listening to cello goddess Maya Beiser, and this is our Immigrant Song series. And my goodness, she had perfect pitch, but she also had perfectly good rebellious taste. And she just didn't want to do what everyone was doing. Violin, no thank you. Let me try that cello. Classical, it's nice. No thank you. Uh, Some shoes with that dress? No, I'll try barefoot. And in the end, though so many classical musicians didn't respect the music of Janis Joplin or Led Zeppelin, or so many of the pop bands and popular music. She was a rebel, and she wanted to combine both worlds. When we come back, more of the life of cello goddess Maya Beiser, here on Our American Story. Return to Our American Stories and the final portion of cellist Maya Beiser's story about music and freedom. Maya received a full scholarship to study at Yale, and so this Israeli came to America. To be honest, when I came, I didn't really think I was going to stay here. I didn't know much about the American culture. And I kind of saw myself more going back to France, where my mom's from. And while I was at Yale, I started to come to New York, and I immediately fell in love with New York. New York is my home, (laughs) and it's just, there was just something about this city that, that is just so great, because it's a city of refugees from all over the world being artist or other <laughs> and, and and it's just the energy here is so great and it allowed me to be the kind of artist that I am I think living here in New York because you have the space and the freedom to kind of explore whatever it is that you want to do and so it made me a braver fearless person because I didn't feel um, suffocated the way I think I felt in some way in the kibbutz, certainly, and and in Israel, which is a very small society. So I, um, you know, you could one can reinvent oneself in New York every every other day and still nobody would really care. And I think in many ways that's true for America. I mean, I think of this country as a place that 
as an immigrant, I could come here and I could become an American and I feel at home and I feel welcome. And um, it's, it's just, it's a wonderful thing. Maya was in her adopted home of New York on September 11th, 2001. That day was one of the most beautiful, glorious days. And my little girl, I was walking her to her preschool little nursery down the street from us. And I I came back from, from the nursery and we were sitting in our garden. Yes, there are gardens in New York City as well. <laughs> and uh, we were drinking coffee and... I'll never forget that conversation that we had at that, you know, at 8, 8 a.m. that morning because we were talking about how fortunate we are that we no longer live in Israel where, you know, there are terrorist attacks all the time. And we thought how, how fortunate we are that we live in New York City and, and um, you know, we felt so secured. And, and, of course, a few minutes later, that horrified thing happened. This just in, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. And we started to work on this piece right when that happened. It was going to be my first big show for Carnegie Hall, and they commissioned the piece. They commissioned this whole evening for me. And she titled it world to come the idea of world to come it's it's about life after death and what happens just just kind of how is it possible that these thousands of people were there for one moment and then they're gone and where do they go and so it's this notion of, of the soul that separates from the body because you have all these bodies in this case we didn't even have the bodies I sing and play at the same time, and the voice, is, the voice represents the soul, which is kind of trying to unite with the cello, which is the body. In the Jewish tradition, there's this notion that when one dies, the soul separates from the body, and then there's this whole time where you're supposed to sort of watch over the body because there's still it's it's still kind of a scary time where where the, the soul sort of tries to leave the body which is why there are all these rituals you know that has to do with purifying the body and all these things to kind of help the soul go but there also the belief is that eventually the soul tries to reunite with the body right and when the messiah comes and you know, I'm not an expert on Jewish religion at all, <laughs> but we, with, this, with this piece, the idea was to try to convey that sense of, of the soul and the body. And there's this moment in the, in the fourth movement of World to Come, which is my favorite one, where you just hear the voice. And, and then you hear another voice. There's like an echo of the voices that happens. And then the cello comes in with this 
beautiful melody. It's sort of like this moment where they reunite together. It's one of my favorite work to play. It's, you know, it's dark and somber, but it's also just such a really powerful and beautiful piece. Earlier, we played for you some of Maya's covers of rock classics, and they were a part of her 2014 album Uncovered, where there are no guitars or vocals. Her cello does all of the heavy lifting with some assistance from a bass and drum. I think the cello has this incredible ability to be very sweet and beautiful and, you know, melancholy, but it could also be really gritty and kind of dirty. The range is huge. Plus, what I do, you know, because I, I use all kinds of distortions and all kinds of analog boxes, and, you know, we have so many beautiful toys. So I put... I. You know, I really, in this album, the Uncovered album, the idea of Uncover was was to, we called it Uncover, it was sort of like, you know, tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but, but it's, it's the idea that these are covers that sort of uncover the, the inner core of the music. You know, one thing that I always say, every piece of music that we play from the past is a cover. When I play Bach, I'm covering Bach. You know, when I play Mozart, I'm covering Mozart. When I play Beethoven, I'm covering Beethoven. So the idea that there's something different here is is only because, you know, we're so, I mean, the, the classical music basically plays music of the past and it's all covers, right? So, and every person sort of bring their own interpretation to it. So I wanted to take those, those great, for me, each and every song in that album was a song that changed me deeply in some way at the moment that I first heard those songs. You know, Jimi Hendrix, I mean, I can't tell you what it did <laughs> to, my, to my musical world. And so I hope that in some way, there is some revelation in those uncovers that it somehow when people listen to it, they kind of hear something they haven't heard in the original. So obviously it does not try to replace the original, which is, I think, all of those originals are, are eternal and glorious. But it just tries, it's, it's tries to create another way to kind of hear those originals. You might think that Maya, with all of her contrarianism, would be casting aside all of the old, like Bach. But this isn't so. Every morning, she starts her practice with Bach. I'm not casting it aside at all. At all. In fact. I absolutely love Bach, and I find it um, very nourishing. So part of the reason why I started in the morning with Bach is it's part of my whole meditative way that I start. I also start doing yoga, and I meditate, and, and I play Bach 
And I, every day that I play Bach, I try to play it in a completely different way. So I have, I do these kind of mental exercises with myself, you know, but it's just a great way for me to sort of ground myself and, um, and kind of also be humble, which I think is a very important thing for an artist. And Bach always makes me very humble. And you've been listening to Maya Beiser. And she is, of course, the cello goddess, or she's known as that. I think just after hearing her say that humility is a key part of her life, I hope she knows that's tongue-in-cheek. I don't think she'd call herself a goddess. But uh, having her play the covers of Bach and Beethoven, but also put Zeppelin and Hendrix right in there with those two composers, well, I think that's just a beautiful thing, and it makes her unique. And by the way, she talks about this country the way everyone does. And in the end, we call this an immigrant song for a simple reason. Everybody plays their song upon the canvas, upon the charts, the musical charts of this country. And it's freedom. That's why she came here. And that's what she loved about the place. And she gets to play it any old way she wants to in each and every one of our lives, an interpretation of that song, of that freedom song. Maya Beiser's life, her story, an immigrant song, here on Our American Stories. 